welcome everybody. You've already been welcomed, and um, I'm Mary Caldor. And uh, what I really want to say is that how pleased I am to be chairing Misha. That's why I looked a bit cross when I arrived and saw they'd begun, because Misha's a very old friend and somebody whose work I've followed and admired for over 20 years. Uh, he did fantastic work. Most of you will be aware of it on the Balkans. Uh, and before that on Eastern Europe and all subjects that I'm very interested in. But I really do think that this book is his best book. And I think it's a really important book because what it's about is the sort of underside of globalization. That's what it's about. And, you know, I feel there's so much we don't know about the underside of globalization, and yet it's an integral part of the whole process of globalization. Here at LSE, we tend to talk about the upside of globalization and not the underside. And I actually think that the only way you can investigate this is through the skills of being an investigative journalist, which is what Misha is. I mean, we've thought about it a lot in our center. Uh, we've thought a lot about the links between um, transnational crime and political violence which are undoubtedly integral <laughs> but it's incredibly difficult to describe except through stories and that's what this book does absolutely brilliantly is to tell you the stories of organised crime so uh, with that I'll hand over to Misha to tell you some of the stories but I really do recommend the book do, Mary. Well, thanks very much. And you've actually, I mean, it's really good of you to introduce it uh, in that way because I think, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you're obviously talking about me, so I have, uh, you know, slightly sort of uh, <coughs> feel slightly modest about, about commenting on that, but you've actually hit the nail on, your, on the head about stories, finding out the stories, and then using those stories to illuminate the larger processes that, uh, that are, are going on. And there has been a lot, quite a lot written about crime uh, before I, I wrote this. But um, uh, uh, most of it's written in, in two genres, either as, as uh, uh, sociological uh, assessment, um, assessments of political scientists of what's going on in international crime, or um, in the rather sort of sensationalist genre of people who see organized crime as a rather unchanging phenomenon that is based essentially on the existence of a, as a, of a group of bad people uh, who are the barbarians at the gate of our civilization trying to bring the whole thing down. And it really doesn't work like that. And so through these stories, I wanted to illuminate the relationship between uh, crime and uh, politics in a globalizing world. Um, but anyway, I'll start uh, here in Belgrade. Um, when was this? Um, this was March 15th, 2003. I've written it there, so it's unmistakable. This is the uh, funeral of Zoran Djindjic. And uh, just behind that car there, someone there is me. Um, I'm one of the people who went there. Zoran had been... Uh, assassinated a few days before and uh, 
I felt compelled to uh, uh, drop everything and fly to Belgrade for the funeral because uh, Zoran was um, a friend of mine and uh, uh, it was a great uh, tragedy for Serbia and for the Balkans that he was murdered um, and uh, the question that uh, was whizzing around my mind was why he was murdered. It was popularly assumed that he was murdered uh, in 2003 because he was about to hand over uh, General Ratko Mladic to the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague, although there was actually no uh, substance to that in as much that he didn't really know where, where he was uh, at the time. And uh, uh, so I did a, a little bit more digging as to why Zoran had been killed and uh, discovered that about three months prior to this, he had <coughs> promulgated the first ever um, Witness Protection Act in Southeastern Europe. And he had set up one of the Mr. Biggs of Belgrade, a man called Chume, uh, to testify against some very significant and powerful criminals uh, in Belgrade. And uh, I think this is the key reason why he was killed. Um, the irony of this, of course, is that Zoran himself was a gangster. Uh, but he was a good gangster. He was a gangster who understood that you couldn't engage in effective politics in southeastern Europe uh, after 1989-1990, and particularly in Serbia under Milosevic, uh, if you didn't have money. Politics was a very, very expensive business. And uh, the only way that you could really make money was to indulge in the uh, practices that uh, most political parties were forced to indulge in after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, which were basically pretty sharp practices. In uh, Serbia, after 1992 and the imposition of uh, economic sanctions, uh, any work that involved import or importing or exporting goods was by definition criminal because you were breaking the UN sanctions. And Djindic has actually started, uh, when he was studying under Habermas in Germany, he also started his parallel career as a businessman, uh, which is something that he had always done, uh, importing and exporting secondhand clothes uh, to and from Germany into Yugoslavia. And uh, when he died, he was, a, he was a substantially rich man, and the Democratic Party <clears throat> was largely built on his ability, on his uh, ability to run businesses. Nonetheless, his murder was a real tragedy, and uh, I think it set the Balkans back a good five to ten years, and I don't think we'd be in the mess that we're in around the Kosovo situation now if, uh, if Ginger Chud had lived. But anyway, it made me think <clears throat> when I started to write this book, because it was his murder that uh, uh, really made me feel I ought to write a book about this, how we had, uh, how we had got to this situation from here in 1989, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. Now, for me, this was a, a fantastic event, 1989, or series of events, because I'd been, since my teens, I'd been engaged uh, in 
uh, the politics of Eastern Europe, and one of the things I did was to smuggle uh, books and dismembered Xerox machines um, uh, into Eastern Europe in train compartments and things like that, so uh, I had a little bit of experience of crime before I started writing this book. Um, and uh, I was overjoyed by the liberation of 250 million people who had been denied their democratic rights in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Um, of course, by the time I was reporting on it from the BBC, I jettisoned all political affiliation because I was an objective reporter. Um, but it was still, nonetheless, uh, wonderful to see this go on. But if you remember, if you were around at the time, and if you weren't, I'll tell you now, very few governments anticipated uh, that uh, this was going to happen. And not only did they not anticipate what was going to happen, um, but they had absolutely no idea when it did happen what was going to follow it. Um, so there was no planning for the complete collapse of the communist uh, state structure uh, uh, around large parts of Europe and, and Asia, and that was to prove a little problematic um, afterwards. Now, meanwhile, back in the West, globalization had already begun around about the early to mid-80s, and what does globalization do? It shrinks the world, of course. There we are, the world is shrinking. It's getting smaller as everyone uh, makes uh, a lot of money by... Um, uh, exploiting the liberalizing commodity markets, the liberalizing financial markets, and in particular, you're opening up markets to trade which before have, uh, have never traded. And uh, that means if you've got a sharp eye and um, if you have a, an acute sense of, um, uh, of what is a good trade bargain, uh, you're going to do well out of globalization. And there were some people... In, uh, um, in Eastern Europe who were able to conjoin the benefits of uh, communism collapsing with globalization um, in order to start up some new businesses. And here they are. There we are. Um, these are a bunch of people from Bulgaria. You may remember them from before 1989 as... Uh, weightlifters and wrestlers who every four years would win the gold medals at the Olympics. Uh, they were celebrities in communist Bulgaria. Um, they would get free flats. They would have uh, access to cars and things like that, which no one else had. And they lived a wonderful life. Um, but when the communist state collapsed in 1989, the state subsidies, which had uh, underpinned their fabulous lifestyle, suddenly disappeared. And uh, this was not to their liking. And so uh, they hooked up with another set of people who, uh, uh, who were recently also on the job market. Between 1989 and 1991, Bulgaria sacked 14,000 members of its security services. Now, when you're in a situation where the state is collapsing, the economy is heading south at a rate of, of knots, the last thing you really want to let onto the uh, job market are 14,000 people whose chief skills are in building underground networks, surveillance, smuggling, and killing people. But that's what happened in Bulgaria, and very soon those 14,000 secret police operatives hooked up with my friends, the Olympic uh, wrestlers and weightlifters, 
and they were taking the law into their own hands because it wasn't just the communist ideology that had collapsed, it was the state as well. Police weren't functioning, courts weren't functioning, and so it was these guys who defined what was legal and what was illegal. These guys were what we like to call in sociological jargon privatized law enforcement agencies, but which are better known amongst, uh, uh, amongst us in a, colloquial, in a colloquial sense as protection rackets or the mafia. And they had a stranglehold on the major assets uh, of the collapsing Bulgarian state. And they looked for markets uh, elsewhere they could define what was legal and illegal. And so as far as they were concerned, cars, soft fruits, so popular in Bulgaria, uh, wine uh, uh, were the same as drugs, traffic, women, untaxed cigarettes, and so on and so forth. And so they looked abroad for some friends. And they found them in places like Colombia. There is uh, Pablo Escobar. And in 1992, there was a series of meetings in, on the island of Aruba, between Sonsevo, the biggest uh, organized crime group in Mos Moscow, and representatives of uh, the Cali and Medellin cartels, who were still friends at the time, they fell out a little later, um, uh, brokered by some industrious Italian lawyers. And um, uh, these people met in order specifically to plan new routes of bringing cocaine into Europe, as markets were opening up, the European Union was beginning to develop, deliver benefits in a globalized world to the citizens of uh, the European Union. And uh, so, uh, and the East European markets were opening up for cocaine. By this time, the uh, United States had reached super saturation point, has 5% of the world's population roughly, and it consumes 40% of the world's refined cocaine. So they had to look elsewhere. And uh, they looked to the Balkans as transit routes for cocaine and West Africa. Uh, Afghanistan was also in a state of collapse and the uh, heroin markets were rocking. And then you had some more traditional characters who were beginning to understand the value of uh, uh, global markets because they were making so much money uh, after their collaboration in the so-called bubble economy with the corporate and political elite of Japan that they were looking for places to... Uh, to uh, invest their money, and they started uh, looking around places like the Philippines, Thailand, um, <coughs> building up a whole series of uh, rest and recreation centers uh, in places like Thailand, which very soon became popular with uh, European tourists as well, chiefly male tourists, uh, including um, uh, a lot of northern European Scandinavians, Germans, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there were all sorts of market opportunities in places where people hadn't worked before. Now, there were some collateral victims of the, cold, the collapse of the Cold War, most notably in Africa. Um, what had essentially happened in uh, Africa was that the uh, proxy wars, which had been underwritten and sponsored by the CIA and the KGB, had more or less come to an end with the Cold War, but the warring uh, the, the warlords who were in, engaged in these and who had benefited hugely personally in terms of personal wealth uh, from the wars in countries like Angola decided they want to continue them but needed to find a new source of funding. And the most obvious source of funding were the mineral resources of Africa. And so in the 1990s, you had this extraordinary uh, development of what I consider to be one of the greatest crimes of the 20th century but isn't fully recognized as such yet, 
that culminates in the slaughter of the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, which saw the mass transfer of weapons from the surplus stocks of the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe via East Africa and Southern Africa, uh, conveyed by uh, Israeli criminal groups, by South African criminal groups, by French criminal groups, by Russian and Ukrainian criminal groups, into the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, where between 1998 and the present day, we have seen five and a half million people killed as a result of this war. It always astonishes me that Darfur receives quite so much attention as it does, not that the situation there isn't uh, absolutely appalling, but uh, when you look at what's happened at the DR, in the DRC, you wonder why uh, public and international outrage is not concomitantly uh, uh, vast about what's been going on there. Now, what's happened in order to buy those weapons from the former Soviet Union, they would sell their um, mineral resources. And, of course, uh, at the turn of the millennium, the most popular mineral resource sold out of the eastern DRC was coltan, a metallic ore from which extra is extracted material that is used in cell phones, in uh, laptops, and in all games consoles around the world. Uh, at, as, as I say, at the time of the millennium, 80% of the world's stocks were coming out of the eastern DRC from the killing fields. And uh, they were being brought out by the same gangs who were bringing in the weapons. And then they were being sold into the licit market, whether or not the electronic manufacturers knew the origin of this coltan, uh, I couldn't possibly co comment. Um, but uh, whatever happens, all of us using cell phones and laptops and games consoles at the time, we were complicit in what I consider to be one of the greatest crimes of the 20th century. Meanwhile, where was I? That's where I was, in Yugoslavia. And there he is, Arkan, with Milica, his little tiger, on loan from Belgrade Zoo. And behind that, his bigger tigers. And uh, it was there in Yugoslavia with the paramilitaries that uh, through the fog of war, I started to get a very, very dim sense of what was uh, going on in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, there we have it. The... Um, the uh, three components which go to making what I call uh, McMafia, um, or rather the global shadow economy. Now, when I did my calculations using material from various uh, international financial institutions and various uh, emerging and extremely uh, useful academic institutions around the world, I came up with a figure, which uh, I've since sort of uh, stabilized, of 15 to 20% of the world's economy being shadow economy, that is outside of state control or purview. And uh, I now think that it's about 15% uh, of uh, the economy. But uh, the important thing is, is this is not just criminal markets and protection, although that's a significant part of it. It also concludes corruption, which is now estimated to be worth uh, close to $3 trillion a year. And corruption is incredibly important because it facilitates and accelerates all sorts of other uh, shadow economic markets. But I also have to include corporate fraud and tax evasion, which has its origins in the licit economy. And the reason why I have to do this is so much of that money 
is laundered through the same institutions and mechanisms that money from criminal markets and corruption is. Uh, and so in this sense, the, uh, particularly the international banking uh, system uh, sort of melts together the funds uh, um, uh, uh, illegally gained from these uh, sources, and it's then very, very difficult to try and take them apart. Um, but I want to start off going back uh, to uh, Yugoslavia very quickly. Um, uh, 1991, we imposed an arms embargo on all the former Yugoslavia republics. Within days, weapons were pouring into Croatia, and uh, when the Croats uh, deigned to let them into Bosnia-Herzegovina, Bosnia-Herzegovina as well, the Serbs didn't really need any weapons because they had far too many as it was, thanks to their ownership of the Yugoslav People's Army, which was at the time the fourth largest army in the world. Now, the interesting thing is, is, is that the, the biggest sellers of weapons to Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina were, anyone guess, Russia and Ukraine, supposedly the great ally of Serbia, the pan-Orthodox axis, as it were. When it came to money, who gives a damn? Nobody. And one of the very interesting things, except for one notable exception, which is in India, about the shadow economy and criminal activity is, is that all the sort of paradigms we have of nationalist struggle and things like that float out of the window when it comes to the uh, exchange of, of, of goods uh, in the shadow economy. Uh, now, even in the communist period, Bulgaria and Serbia have been the main conduit for heroin going into the lucrative markets of the European Union. After 1989, that just became a sort of uh, six-lane highway of heroin and about where you see about where that little I'm very bad at this little about there um, uh, the heroin split up in a town called Veliki Turnovac which is a uh, um, a majority Albanian town in southern Serbia half of it went up to Belgrade half of it went across to uh, Pristina and uh, <clears throat> those people who like to see Albanians as the sole purveyor of illicit goods and services in the Balkans let me assure you that everyone is involved in the purveyance of illicit goods and services uh, through the Balkans. Uh, we've already seen that new drugs were joining in. There's also uh, the uh, introduction of large-scale manufacture of ecstasy, methamphetamines, and uh, other drugs in uh, Belgrade and Sofia in particular, where there was uh, an excellent uh, tradition of chemistry. And uh, then we had some new commodities and services being trafficked through the Balkans, most of all uh, traffic women, some of whom stopped off in uh, places like Sarajevo to service the um, increasingly large international uh, community. And uh, then handguns were going through. And, of course, what they were all doing is, is they were going up to the European Union because... The European Union was developing into the largest consumer market in history at this point, and a significant section of European citizenry liked to spend uh, a significant part of their extra cash and their leisure time uh, on taking drugs and sleeping with prostitutes if they're men or employing illegal migrant labor. And that particular habit, the last one, goes up right to the very top of some 
governments and states in the European Union. And again, just for your entertainment, you can guess which ones I mean by that. I'm not going to tell you. And then in 1994, there was a new trade that was invented, and that was sending cigarettes, duty not paid cigarettes. These are cigarettes that are manufactured legitimately in Europe and in the United States by tobacco companies, which are then sold, for example, from the United Kingdom into the free trade zones of Zug and Rotterdam in Switzerland and, um, Switzerland and uh, Holland. And they then get sent to somewhere like Uzbekistan or northern Cyprus, where the paperwork gets lost. They then get flown back into Montenegro. And from Montenegro, well, I'll show you in a minute what happens to them from Montenegro. Uh, but the point is they get back to Italy and then they get taken up in trucks to northern Europe, back across the English Channel where they're sold on the Holloway Road for two-fifths of the price that you can buy them in the shops. Now, of course, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in that incident doesn't get any of the tax on these cigarettes but the tax you're paying is going to fund, amongst other things, the paramilitary operations in the Balkans. So every time you're buying cheap fags um, uh, from whoever it is on the Holloway Road, you are almost certainly uh, also co-funding some extremely unpleasant shadow economic activity. This is what happened from 1994 onwards. Here you see a boat which is worth 1 million euros. It's the fastest thing on the Adriatic. And when this trade started in 1994, the uh, coastal defences of Italy had just two boats of a comparable speed that could keep up with this one between Ancona, close, heading up to the north, and uh, Reggio Calabria uh, down, in the, down in the south. But from 1994, every night, about 20 of these boats made the trip from Bar in Montenegro uh, to uh, the Apulian coast, uh, close to Bari. Uh, and um, there they are. There you've got the cigarettes down there at the bottom. And there are the gangs. They'll look up and give you a little wave now. There they are. Hello. And uh, so, as I say, 20 of these every night, 365 days of the year for about nine years. And um, everyone made a lot of money. Uh, President Djukanovic of Montenegro stated quite frankly that he imposed a transit tax on the uh, cigarettes going, going through, as he put it. Uh, and the Italian justice authorities recently, just about three weeks ago, uh, invited him for a conversation in Bari, which he went to for a six-hour conversation on his role in this trade and the possible association, alleged association, I must stress, with, uh, and look, this is how many boats it takes to catch one, okay? You need six to catch one of them, because the only way you can catch them is by um, uh, running, for them running out of gas, running out of petrol. So um, uh, that's hard. Uh, and uh, so the other thing they do is they would traffic women across this way as well, and if they came uh, under assault by the Italians, they would throw the women, uh, women out of the boat so that the Italian coastal defense had to go and pick up the women. There, we've got him. Hooray. Um, uh, but that was a very rare thing, actually catching one of these things. So that was the amount of trade that was going through. It amounted in the end to about six, seven billion dollars, uh, about four billion pounds, which was taken away uh, from the Chancellor because we have the highest rates of taxation on cigarettes in the biggest market. Now, if you think the Balkans was rocking, whoa, 
Uh, Moscow, here we are. You see the, the, the blue thing around there? That's the MCAT. Um, the MCAT, and around the MCAT there are all these uh, uh, places, uh, which is where the working class, in whose name the Communist Party in Moscow ruled, but the working class were always thrown out to these uh, rather dingy suburbs. These are the names of suburbs, but they're also names of the biggest organized crime groups in Russia. And uh, not only were they the working class districts, but they are also situated next to places like Vnukovo, which people will remember, is an airport in Moscow. Dolga Prudnaya is near Sheremetyevo. And uh, then we've got the uh, southern port just there near Sonsevor, where all the trade routes were coming in. This is where the strongest organized crime groups uh, emerged in Moscow. Now, what happened there was as what was going on in Bulgaria, but large scale. <clears throat> the fact is, is that not only were the courts and the police not functioning, but capitalism was being introduced. You were seeing the emergence of contract law, but you had no police or courts to uh, check that the contracts entered into were honored. And so this is why they emerged. They were the midwives of capitalism. They were absolutely essential to the emergence of a free market uh, in Russia. Uh, but of course, although nine times out of ten, they would sit down with their opposite number representing another businessman when there was a contractual dispute, they would sort things out very amicably and both uh, um, uh, protection services would agree that con contract A, uh, businessman A would pay so much to businessman B, but on the tenth time out of ten, they would not agree on what the, how the contract dispute should be resolved, and so instead they would agree to meet, uh, you know, sort of uh, on Sunday at dawn at the Nevsky Prospect, bring your knives except they brought their AK-47s and their rocket-propelled grenades. And so Moscow, St. Petersburg, and uh, 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 Yekaterinburg, and all these places um, turned into uh, a really uh, chaotic uh, state of uh, affairs. And uh, this was the uh, Wild East gangster capitalism, which um, so terrified everybody who was, who was there. Um, underneath it, behind it, there were the oligarchs who had their own protection rackets, vast protection rackets, uh, which included lawyers and PR people as well as the muscle like this. And they were um, perpetrating what I refer to in the book as the greatest larceny in history, which was the theft of Russia's uh, mineral and, uh, uh, and um, uh, oil resources. Uh, and uh, what they were doing was grabbing hold of those uh, and uh, pocketing, pocketing the cash. Now, at some point, uh, it was always going to be, they were always aware that what was going to happen was that, uh, that, by the way, is not a severed head. I was told to warn people, he's still alive, as far as I know. Uh, anyway, so um, yes, they'd, uh, they'd get all this money. Two to three hundred billion dollars was exported from uh, Russia uh, between 1990 and 2000. Ironically, during the same time period, two to three hundred billion dollars uh, was sent into Russia by the IMF to stabilize the ruble. And so we were subsidizing this larceny 
by the oligarchs, ironically. And as I said, the, um, the uh, great bearer of the Russian state, they were full aware, fully aware, would one day emerge from, from its hibernation and look around and see that somebody had been at its honey, and uh, it would want to go after them. And uh, that's exactly what it did. It sent some of them to prison, some of them into exile, and some of them it struck deals with. Um, there is a huge amount of popular support for Putin, regardless of whether he, uh, whatever his uh, democratic credentials are. The fact is, the 1990s, in which you saw life expectancy for Russian males drop to 1557, a really precipitous drop in a short space of time, you must not underestimate how chaotic the 1990s were for ordinary people, how stripped they were of uh, their material uh, security, and how fabulously wealthy and ostentatious uh, the oligarchs were. That's not to say that under Putin, people haven't been pocketing billions of dollars uh, <clears throat> while no one's looking. They have. They're just much more careful about how they manage this uh, operation. Anyway... The money had to go somewhere. Fortunately, this was the 1990s, and there was tremendous competition from the uh, new centers of the financial world, the liberalizing financial world, uh, to find homes for this money. And so the idea of there being any coherent anti-money uh, laundering strategy was, frankly, ludicrous, and there was none. As it was, President Clinton had a big debate. He understood and his people understood that this was increasingly going to be a problem. And they did have a big debate within the Clinton administration about whether they should go to, as I was told by a, a figure who was deeply involved in this, whether they should go to Liechtenstein and put a gun to Liechtenstein's head and say, stop these practices now um, uh, or else we'll close you down. And when you control 25% of the world's economy and... Uh, uh, have uh, the reserve currency um, uh, as well, you can influence a lot of people like Liechtenstein. Unfortunately, the people arguing for that within the Clinton administration lost uh, the argument and things got considerably worse when the Bush administration uh, came in because they considered all form of regulation on the financial and banking system to be, and I quote, a European conspiracy designed to damage the competitiveness of American banks. Now, fortunately, things have changed a bit since then. It's very encouraging to see uh, Angela Merkel. Isn't it amazing to say that the most visionary politician in Europe is Angela Merkel? But it's true. She is now going uh, after Liechtenstein and possibly Monaco. Um, this is a good thing. It's to do with tax evasion, but all sorts of other things would crawl up from uh, under the stones if we, uh, if we uh, turned over them. This is really critical to the global shadow economy. In the wake of the subprime market, where uh, we now know the banks don't know what they're doing with their own money, how much they're losing, and in which derivatives of derivatives they're wrapping up this cash. There is no way that if we have 15% of the economy as a shadow economy, and that most of that has to go through the banks, there is no way that we have an effective mechanism for uh, clocking where and, and uh, uh, whither all this uh, money is, uh, whence it's uh, coming and whither it's going. And this is something that is absolutely essential to doing something about the uh, shadow economy. Now, culture was homogenizing as well at this time. Here you see a picture of a couple of, uh, well, four Bedouin teenagers taking cocaine across 
from the Sinai to the Negev Desert. Uh, Israel is very interesting. Nobody really noticed what was going on in Israel during the 1990s because of the obsession with the issue of the Palestinians. Um, but it was changing hugely as a society because of globalization. Um, and uh, uh, in particular, you've got a very, very wealthy, go-ahead, dynamic, entrepreneurial class based around uh, Tel Aviv. And with this came a culture uh, of drugs, sex, clubbing, designer drugs in, in, in particular. And uh, Tel Aviv uh, and uh, Netanya and, and Haifa became riddled with brothels. A huge amount of the uh, uh, trafficking of women into the Middle East went either to Israel or to the United Arab Emirates. Um, and uh, the woman whose story I follow, who came from Tiraspol in Transnistria, she was trafficked um, mostly by men, although her original recruiter was a woman, via Chisinau in Moldova, then Odessa in Ukraine, then up to Moscow. She thought she was going for uh, a holiday in, in Israel. Um, uh, then uh, up to Moscow, where she was kept for three weeks in an apartment, and then she was sent to Cairo. Uh, when in Cairo, she was handed over by <coughs> Egyptians, Muslims, to uh, Bedouins from the Sinai in Egypt, to Bedouins from the Negev in Israel, who then handed her over to Russian Israelis, who sold her at what was little more than a cattle market in which she was made to uh, uh, take off her clothes, bend over and so on and so forth to indigenous, an indigenous Israeli brothel keeper has, who set her to work in Tel Aviv. And when she worked in Tel Aviv, uh, she was compelled to do so from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. every night, week in, week out, uh, and uh, she had to serve up to 20 clients a night. So she was being raped 20 times uh, a night. Now, uh, the... Uh, <clears throat> The problem about all this is there's, a, there's now a sort of, um, uh, sort of counter-reaction uh, on the issue of female trafficking, suggesting that actually there is very little trafficking that goes on. Much of it is, is, is voluntary, that the women know what they're going to do because it's the only way that they can survive economically. There is undoubtedly a large uh, element of that, although I very much doubt that many of the women who make that decision to enter into prostitution in the West or the Middle East fully understand what awaits them when they reach uh, these brothels. And there is still a significant number of women who are trafficked, who are trafficked against their will. And uh, it really is the most appalling uh, trade, which uh, on the whole we be, do very little to stem. As with the European Union, it's basically consumer-driven. Consumer and we really have to address the demand side of the global shadow shadow economy because it is, is, it is our uh, <clears throat> it is uh, us who make these markets so attractive uh, with our habits. Now, what do we got coming up here? Oh, yes. Here we have the bread and butter, the mainstay of uh, all, uh, all the trade and that is narcotics. And this is a dope farm in the basement of a house in eastern British Columbia. Uh, the marijuana trade now accounts for about 5% of BC's economy. Uh, according to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, there are 25,000 25, grow operations in the greater Vancouver area alone in residential areas. That's excluding industrial areas and it's excluding the great outback of central 
and Eastern uh, BC. Um, there are communities in Central and Eastern BC which would collapse uh, if, you, um, if you took away the marijuana industry. This is because uh, marijuana has jumped out of the traditional zones of organized crime like the Hells Angels who control a lot of the Vancouver trade and uh, Vietnamese communities who are heavily involved, parts of them, in uh, the distribution and pro pro uh, uh, the production of marijuana and its sale into the middle classes. The bulk of people involved in the marijuana trade are middle class families who sell the stuff in order to afford a second holiday or a loft conversion or something like that and uh, it's completely out of control. There is demand within Canada of course but also there's a huge amount exported uh, into the United States. Um, if you look at the figures, you'll see why so many people get involved uh, in the uh, pr produce and trafficking of, um, of narcotics of all kinds. There you have coffee, 80% markup, heroin, 360, cocaine, 1,000. These uh, tables are from a cabinet office report that uh, was published in 2006, and the findings were so damaging to the war on drugs that the cabinet office decided to suppress its publication, and it was leaked a little later. So we can see just how completely and utterly useless the war on drugs is in trying to stop people from both consuming and producing this material. Here is a cavernous warehouse to the east of Vancouver where the uh, delightful Inspector Brian Cantera of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police shows me around what they... Uh, uh, confiscate from drug traffickers in the course of a month um, and it makes no dent onto their, uh, uh, onto their trade or their profits uh, whatsoever. Here we see how the war on drugs begins and the price of cocaine and uh, falls uh, to the wholesale distributor. This has absolutely no impact whatsoever uh, on uh, people's access to the to the drugs. Uh, but this is where we get serious now, and that is with the Taliban. Um, <clears throat> in 2003, the Taliban was a defeated force militarily. It was over. Uh, and all we had to do is to do something which we should have done at some point over the past 150 years but neglected to do, which was to set up a serious program uh, of development in Afghanistan. But now we had the opportunity. And then in their wisdom, the United States and the United Kingdom decided to go to war in Iraq, and everyone forgot about Afghanistan. Everyone except the Taliban, who used this opportunity to reorganize themselves, to refinance themselves, and rearm themselves. And they refinanced themselves through the taxation on the opium trade, which since 2003 has uh, grown astronomically once again, well over 50% in most years increase on production year on year. This is bringing in the Taliban tens of millions of dollars every month. They are now uh, uh, killing NATO personnel, often with abandon, and the greatest military alliance in history is on the verge of a catastrophic and humiliating defeat, which were it to take place, I very much doubt it could survive. Now, the only reason that NATO are in this position... Uh, is because of the war on drugs, which confers an abnormal value on a commodity which in a legal market would not have that value. Economists are largely united in the, uh, 
the, on the issue of the war on drugs and uh, its function as a prohibition uh, mechanism. But really, when you get to Afghanistan, you have to ask the political viability of it. Has the war on drugs prevented the spread of narcotics throughout the urban and rural areas of most of the Western world? No. Has it prevented the spread to new markets like Thailand and Indonesia? No, it hasn't. Um, has it done much to prevent the social damage associated with the consumption of drugs? No, it hasn't. And has it done anything to the bank balances of the major drug exporters? Well, in my experience, the most fervent supporters of uh, the war on drugs were major Colombian exporters of cocaine and the big uh, drugs exporters of British Columbia. And that, for me, was the final argument. This is a ludicrous policy, and we have got to do something to change it uh, at, some point, at some point soon. The emperor's new clothes, but, you know, I very much doubt it. Now, change the subject. Meet Mr. Pringle, um, or should I say Senor Pringle, uh, because Senor Pringle is in Sao Paulo, and he's actually hooked up to this very laptop there. You can't see the laptop, but he was hooked up to this. And uh, there, this sort of space thing here, uh, that turns Senor Pringle into a directional antenna. And with that directional antenna, me and a friend of mine called Supergeek, who was really the key person in this operation, were able to drive down the streets of uh, Avenue Paulista. We went down Avenue Paulista and broke into the computer systems of three major Brazilian banks. Uh, that was great fun. Um, cybercrime is the fastest growing sector of uh, the uh, global shadow economy. And, uh, of course, although a lot of it is to do with technology, most of it is to do with persuading you to do things with your computer which objectively are not in your interests. And uh, it didn't take crackers and hackers to work out at an early stage that sex was the best way of persuading you to do silly things with your computers. Now, I don't know if you remember the uh, I Love You virus, which was one of the great uh, uh, sort of first global viruses. You got that little email in your box saying, I love you. Who could resist it? Very few people, it turned out. I was very fortunate because the first person I received the I love you uh, virus from was an ex-girlfriend of mine. <laughs> and uh, she harbored all sorts of sentiments towards me, but love was most definitely not one of them. <laughs> and so as soon as I saw it, I put it into my recycle bin and I spared myself a very nasty infection. And uh, all I can say to you is, is, please, for heaven's sake, keep up to date your antiviral and anti-malware programs. Have two of them, don't have one. And uh, don't let your teenage children download music onto yours, which has happened once again to me. And it's a three-day clear-out system, and I know a little bit about what I'm doing. It's absolute hell. Be very, very careful, because they, they will get your money if you're not very careful. Look at this, Secret Dreams. This was part of a conspiracy which was eventually busted under Operation Pegasus. And I met one of the characters involved in Operation Pegasus or involved in the Secret Dreams. They sent out millions of spam emails every month, and they only get a sort of 0.5 or 0.05, whatever it is, take up on this, but that is still 27,143 emails a month with passwords, bank accounts, all there. Huge amount of money. Um, now, for the moment, of course, banks will pay back any money stolen from your accounts because they've saved so much money by all of us going over to Internet banking on the costs for personnel that they're prepared to do it. But at some point, banks are going to say, 
uh-uh, we're not going to... Um, uh, we're not going to pay it back anymore, and the onus will be on us to secure our computers, and then it will become very uh, expensive and difficult. Um, the um, interesting thing about it is that uh, uh, the whole nature of uh, cybercrime has, has, has switched entirely because it's literally in the past four years we've seen a switch from ego hackers who you know, divert you to porn sites and things like that and it's now 90% of the time you have no idea that you've got a virus on your computer uh, unless you've got a really uh, state-of-the-art um, antiviral program. And uh, there's identity theft, there's the, the key logging thing where they know when you're writing your passwords and that sort of thing. But increasingly there's also the danger of becoming part of a botnet, uh, which is uh, sort of, you know, mega... Um, computer systems controlled by a spotty teenager on the outskirts of Moscow with which he then attacks Estonia and brings the Estonian government down in the space of half an hour. How scary is that? The answer is quite scary. Now, the reasons why we see this concentration of cybercrime in the BRIC countries on the whole is because of the fact that they have good economic infrastructures, there is access um, but uh, there is access to computers, but just as you have the situation of there being a growing huge discrepancy in wealth between North and South uh, and, within North, uh, and within South, in BRIC countries you have vast discrepancies in wealth, and, but you have these cultural aspirations which uh, people um, want to aspire to, and the only way that a lot of young people can can, can meet those aspirations is by stealing through computers. And this is a big, big problem. Now, I'm going to finish now because I've been talking for much too long uh, just to say that the issue of the future of organized crime is not that the triads are going to go all over the world and uh, steal from us, uh, although there are, there are strong criminal elements in uh, parts of the Chinese diaspora as they move abroad. But the issue is to do with intellectual property rights. Um, we, within globalization, have shifted our manufacturing base uh, from the developed world into Asia chiefly and one or two other places, but China obviously. And as far as we're concerned, because we now rely on service and uh, creative industries, um, uh, this is uh, uh, the intellectual property rights issue is very, very serious as far as we're concerned because that's how we make our money. As far as the Chinese are concerned, where they have to create 24 million jobs a year to prevent the kind of uh, outbreak of social unrest both in the countryside and the cities which uh, they're becoming fam familiar with, the, the, the issue of intellectual property rights is really quite far down the priority list of uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the business people in, uh, in China. And so you get a huge amount of counterfeit goods. The European Union estimates that it's now about $500 billion a year uh, coming out of uh, uh, Asia. And what we're going to see is more uh, Mattel toys with lead paint. We're going to see more Volkswagens with defective brake pads coming out of the, the legitimate license factories of China, but somebody's managed to infiltrate cheaper parts into the brake pad uh, manufacturer uh, and this sort of thing. So w what we're seeing is, is that the shadow economy is actually beginning to have an impact on the, the way that the really big economic development of the relationship 
between China on the one hand and the United States and the European Union and Japan on the other develops over the next uh, 10 to 15 years. So there's a big sort of cultural uh, gap there. Anyway, at that point, uh, I'm going to stop. And uh, if there are any questions, I'll ask them. I'll ask Mary back up to the stage. this working yeah thank you Misha that was absolutely riveting um, and I'm dying to ask you masses of questions perhaps I will ask you one isn't Good. it really risky doing this kind of research did you have some hairy moments uh, when you read the book you'll find a surprising number of the characters involved are actually dead um, <laughs> this was my first insurance policy is where possible write about dead people um, very fortunately, three of the major active characters who I do, do write about in less than flattering terms have all recently been arrested. How lucky is that? Se uh, uh, Semyon Magilevich in Russia in um, January and then Victor Boot in Thailand last month. And amazingly, five days ago, Stanko Subotich Tsane, uh, the Mr. Big of the cigarette smuggling world in the Balkans, at Moscow Airport. That was, that was really very, very interesting indeed. So those guys should be busy with other things for a while. Um, I, did, I met representatives of the FARC. I went uh, into a township at 11 o'clock at night um, with one guide who was white, uh, but, uh, but who was embraced by the, uh, the fraternity, in, in the, the, the marijuana fraternity in, in Stellenbosch. And uh, so that was him. He said to me coming in, uh, we drove in there, and he said, you know, nobody, you're coming in with me, nobody is going to touch you at all. And we, he said, park here, and I have my computer. Here it is. And uh, I went to grab the computer to take it in to uh, meet the guys, as it were. And he said, he said, leave it on the front seat. And uh, so I'm kind of, you know, frozen, because what do I do? If I leave it on the front seat, the whole book might get stolen, because, of course, I was rather sort of haphazard about backing things up. So do I leave it on the front seat? But if I leave it on the... If I, don't, if I take it with me, then I'm breaking his trust. And all of this, all the world of the shadow economy, is posited on trust. You have to develop relationships of, of trust. And if I'd have taken it with me, I would have blown it. So I had no choice but to leave it there, leave the car open at his request, which we did. We went in, spoke to the guys for about an hour and a quarter or so, and I learned all about the economics of, of narcotics in South Africa, which was fascinating. An hour and a quarter later, we went back. There it was, untouched. And he said, you see, I told you, you came in with me. You cannot be harmed here, which was, you know, which was quite a kind of, I mean, that I also got a sort of fuzzy feeling with as well. <laughs> but, uh, but mostly... Mostly, when I went to see representatives of the FARC, for example, um, uh, or the guy in Odessa who was uh, really unpleasant, uh, I was just hugely relieved when I, when I got out. Um, uh, some of them, the people in Canada, it, uh, the, it took me a long time to develop those uh, relationships. But once I'd got into those relationships, then they, you know, they, they were very, very uh, open. Uh, about it. Uh, police would not be able to trace any of the people actively involved in, in crime who I saw because I cover things up 
at their insistence, not at their request, at their insistence. You know, and the one thing that I learned is don't even think about lying to people like that. But on the whole, given that you know the time I spent in, in Yugoslavia during the 1990s when you were being shot at and mortared and artilleried the whole time, this was actually less dangerous. The only thing there was is that in the Balkans, you know, I was sort of pretty much on my home territory. Here, I was in places like Colombia, which are really quite freaky, and uh, I didn't know, you know, I didn't feel quite so comfortable about. But on the whole, it's okay. Okay, so l thank you. Questions? Yeah. Hi. What was the interest in having you know that and publish about that? Say that again, sorry. What was their interest in having you know that and letting you know that? Uh, the, the interest varied. Um, in order to get to most of these people, some of them, the, the guy who took me to the township, I was really lucky. I just sort of bumped into, and it was, uh, you know, it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, he had already told his story to a much smaller audience, and I discovered, uncovered that story and I approached him. Uh, you, in order to get, in the Balkans where I started, it was quite easy because I'm a sort of A-list celebrity in the Balkans, you know, which is, I guess, one up from being big in Japan, but actually not really. And uh, so there I was quite well known, and so people knew who I was, and so it wasn't very difficult to get to meet, to meet people. But when I went elsewhere, I mean, even in Russia, which I know somewhat, I hope, you know, I'm nobody. And uh, there, you have to get to the right people. So, for example, the guy in Odessa, I got through someone who was a journalist but who had worked for a big oligarch as his PR man for a couple of years and was now working as a journalist again. And I paid him, the PR, the, the, the journalist, um, uh, a, a lot of money, a retainer, to help me find these people. And he did because he knew who they were and they trusted him. So the onus was then on him. Now, some of them in Bulgaria, for example, they were keen to talk because they resented the fact that they were characterized as organized crime because they argued that, you know, here we were in a situation where the economy was completely up the, the spout. This was a perverse environment. And if it wasn't us who was, and this was the same with one or two people in Russia as well, if we hadn't have been shifting goods, there would have been no jobs there would have been, you know, no market emerge and so on and so forth. And so you can call us organized criminals if you like, but this is when they gave the sort of midwives of, capital, of capitalism argument, which I think, you know, is um, uh, in part a very legitimate argument. In the case of the FARC people, it was very clear. They, you know, they had a political agenda which they wanted to, which they wanted to get out. Um, uh, and uh, in Japan, the Yakuza people are unbelievably polite and accessible. I mean, I, I don't know what their motive was, but, you know, it was all cups of tea and biscuits and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, and he was, you know, the, I spoke to the deputy head of Tokyo's biggest Yakuza operation. He was incredibly polite and really quite upfront. I mean, he, you know, he, he couched it in slightly sort of... Uh, uh, flowery and uh, positive language, but you know, we weren't, he wasn't trying to kid me, what, you know, that he didn't ring up people and say, you know, it's time you did this or else. So uh, I, I can't entirely tell what their, what their motives were, but they were many and varied, I felt. Okay, that's interesting. 
powers of penetration loose on the trafficking and fissionable material, um, nuclear weapons technology, bacteriological. Come up with a natural. Well, I actually, I have, I, I haven't. As, as it happens, there are people, even as we speak, working very hard on this subject. Most of them based out of Washington, uh, and these are both journalists, and they are, but they are also people associated with the American government. There's now an intense program of work trying to find out where it, where it went. The, uh, I mean, the only thing that I'm fairly confident of and that I have information which I'm fairly confident of is, is that certain people in Russia were trading in this material um, uh, significantly during the 1990s, and not all of that has been traced. And this is what the interest that, that Washington has in at the moment. And now, of course with the stabilization of the Russian government in terms of the Russian government likes to keep everything under its control, i.e. the state has reasserted itself, even if it itself acts in a criminal fashion in some respects. Um, there is cooperation in this subject between the FSB and the various agencies in Washington on trying to find out what's going on. But more than that, I, I don't really know. What does Merkel have to do um, in her fight against the banking practices in Liechtenstein and Monaco? Um, essentially, you have to get rid of uh, the facilities which allow people not to declare what is in their bank accounts. Um, and, uh, you know, this is... I mean, they have to be closed down, in my opinion. This is what, what you have to do. You have to have access to those accounts. Liechtenstein lives off uh, uh, Europe. Um, its, its wealth is almost exclusively provided by corrupt European businessmen and, and by um, uh, people laundering money through it. And so it needs to throw the, book open, the books open. And it is refusing to do it, and that is what Merkel is demanding. Um, uh, it, it now looks as though Sarkozy might actually uh, consider demanding the same thing of Monaco as well. But that would be just, that would be just the start. Uh, this is actually something which I, uh, I – one of the things that I'm keen at looking it, into in, in greater detail is, is, uh, is the, are there actually methods that we can employ to clean up, uh, clean up the banking industry uh, if effectively and uh, – the jury is still out on that, but the offshore centers are uh, just, you know, they're, they're sluice gates through which so much money uh, goes through at the moment that something must be done about them, in my opinion. Yes, well, yes, they are. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why I think that the Clinton administration in the end came down in not putting a gun to these places' heads is because there are a lot of, there are a lot of interests there. Uh, I mean, uh, offshore banking centers, their, their function is tax evasion. I mean, that's what their function is. And why they are tolerated, I, you know, I, I don't know, but obviously that's going to be part of the answer. Uh, you started out with a uh, photograph from Belgrade and Mr. Zoran Zinski's funeral procession. 
whom you described as a friend and you were in fact part of those discussions. You've also described him as a gangster. And then you also described him that he was a tragedy, uh, sorry, it was a tragedy for Serbia that this gangster had been released. Uh, in that procession, I should say, was also uh, the foreign minister of uh, Great Britain, namely... Uh, Robin Cook. Robin Cook. Paddy Ashton, who after the bombing of Serbia has become Lord Ashton. Also the German foreign secretary, Mr. Joschka Fischer, who despite coming from a Green Party, was full in agreement with, uh, for example, pulverizing the central television station in Belgrade, which doesn't appear to be regarded as a crime here. Uh, could you tell us what is so great for Serbia that all these people that bonded think is so, so, so good for it? And especially Mr. Djindic, who, by the way, spoke, has been invited and spoke, I believe, in this very same place. Uh, the people have invited him must know that he was a Yes, but I did describe him as a good gangster, and I explained to him how, if you wanted to, I explained how, if you wanted to be involved in politics at the time, you had no, you had no option, because you had to fund your politics. That was the, that was the, 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 the vicious circle that everyone was involved in. And just for the record, I don't think Paddy Ashton was actually responsible in any position of government when it came to bombing Serbia. So you can't. I mean, the fact that he was called Lord Ashton. Or, or not is not is not relevant. I don't think. Um, uh, but uh, you know, the, the 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 point is 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 that Serbia was in an incredibly difficult position uh, after um, uh, after the bombing campaign, uh, and it was uh, deeply traumatized in all sorts of ways, and it needed a political visionary to get it out of that position. Uh, and I think simply that Jindic is, uh, uh, you know, that uh, Jindic was doing things which would have seen Serbia move quicker to a position of stability than his successor was, was able to do. Um, and uh, that's really what I thought was relevant, the fact that, you know, Joschka Fischer was there or, or wasn't there, or there wasn't Fischer who specifically ordered the bombing of, uh, of RTS. Um, <clears throat> that was down to command in, in, in Brussels and, and Washington. Um, so uh, I'm, not sure if, I'm not sure if that's in, entirely relevant. The point was is, is here was somebody who was in a very difficult situation but who understood that in order to move forward Serbia, for, in order for Serbia to move forward and for its citizens to gain, uh, uh, you know, a bit of the prosperity that many other people in Europe were enjoying, he had to do something, the setting up of a, a Witness Protection Act, which were in some respects damaging to his own interests. He knew that Serbian society had to go through this. The European Union is, of course, very good at denouncing Serbia, Bulgaria, and Romania, and so on, about organized crime. Uh, I, no, no, I don't hesitate to say, if Italy had to get into... Uh, if Italy had to get into the European Union today, there's no way it would pass the, uh, uh, judicial, the uh, um, judicial directorate to get through. It simply wouldn't. And, you know, while we talk about Bulgaria, and I feel very, I'm very fond of Bulgaria, I think Bulgaria has actually done quite a lot to do something about what was a devastating 
situation with organized crime. I think we ought to look at Naples and stand up and say what is happening in Naples right now. It's an absolute disgrace that that city is covered literally in filth that is a consequence of the complete absence of uh, state control uh, over uh, the municipal uh, the municipal structures there. It is, it's really an absolute disgrace. Um, uh, frankly, I mean, the Italian judicial system is, is barely changed since Mussolini in some respects, and uh, uh, you know, it's, it, this should be a real issue. Okay, we've got lots of questions. Why don't I now take three at a time? Because they're coming thick and fast. So we'll take this, these two here, these three here in the front, and then we'll come to the back after. Just given the title of your book, um, can you say something about the international reach of the U.S. Mafia? Okay, press in the front. It's a two-part question. One is whether Kosovo's independence, you think, will increase or decrease the flow of human trafficking and, and cocaine. And secondly, if you can draw any parallels between Milo Djukanovic of Montenegro and Hashim Tachi of Kosovo, both of whom are alive. What do you think of the uh, legitimization of narcotics as a tool for combating the shadow economy? Okay. Uh, U.S. Um, Got to feel sad for the five families. Uh, the Sicilian Mafia and the five families are paradoxically one of the great victims of the fall of communism. Um, uh, and uh, uh, although the five families also fell prey to what is one of the most effective anti-organized crime tools in the world, which is the RICO legislation in the United States, the anti-racketeering uh, legislation, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, families have become very dependent on uh, the heroin deals with the Sicilian Mafia. And um, uh, <clears throat> the Sicilian Mafia had basically uh, been sponsored in part by the United States after the Second World War uh, as part of the anti-communist campaign in Italy, and they were very successful, and as a consequence, they hooked up with the local Christian Democrats, later on the Socialist Party as well, and the Christian Democrats in Rome. So the Sicilian Mafia always had protection in Rome, even during the maxi trial of the late 80s. Um, uh, several key figures got significantly reduced sentences uh, because of their connections with the Christian Democrats and in particular with Giulio Andriotti. Um, <clears throat> and uh, what happened after 1989 is, is that whole system which allowed the Christian Democrats for Italians to hold their nose and vote Christian Democrat, that all came tumbling down. But the Sicilian Mafia had not realized this. They had not fully understood the implications of what had gone on. And when they killed the two investigative magistrates, uh, Paolo Borsellino and uh, Giovanni Falcone, they did not expect the huge outrage that this would be met, with which this would be met, uh, not just by ordinary Italians, but chiefly in Sicily. And um, without the protection of Andriotti and the Christian Democrats in Rome, law enforcement came down very heavily on the Sicilian Mafia, and more or less put it, out of, uh, put it out of business. Now, a lot of this was soaked up by the Camorra in Naples and the Indrangheta in Reggio Calabria, but um, it had a, a very damaging effect on the five families in New York just at a time when 
the, uh, 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 the FBI and the New York Police Department had learned how to use RICO very effectively. So the five families and uh, their associates went into very serious uh, decline, but not terminal decline. Um, the Sopranos is really one of the, the finest um, depictions of organized crime uh, ever as an art form. It's absolutely fantastic. And what you see is, is that Tony Soprano understands what's going on and why they're not succeeding as much as, as they used to because that whole culture before 1989 was, was posited. It was a rather small world organized crime before 1989. was posited on the, a system of, of family and clan loyalty. And uh, what they discovered after 1989 is, is, that, uh, is that if you, were, if you kept to those family and clan loyalties, then uh, you would often run into trouble because you would get hotheads like Christopher Moltisanto in the, in the Sopranos who would, um, uh, you know, start, um, start vendettas with other, with other families and things like that. And what that did was to bring the heat on you, both in terms of losing your own people. It also meant that you would bring the heat of public opprobrium, the media, and the police. And uh, there's a moment in the Sopranos when... Tony Soprano kills Christopher Moltisanto when he realizes he has to get rid of him because the new mafias are based on transactional value. They don't care about family loyalties. They, they are primarily profit-driven. And that's what they always have to bear in mind when they're judging about whether they want to get involved in a vendetta or not. So the uh, U.S. mafia has gone through a profound weakening and transformation, as has the Sicilian mafia. Uh, in terms of uh, Kosovo, well, Kosovo, of course, now has uh, four governments functioning. It has UNMIC, it has ULEX, it has the Kosovo government, and in parts of it, it has the Serbian government as well. Uh, on top of that, it has NATO. Uh, it's going to be a long time before this becomes coherent in any way, shape, or form. Uh, <clears throat> the UN has unfortunately presided over a, a really quite dramatic decline of the economy in Kosovo, and uh, it's, you know, it's almost largely a black economy, uh, and that will continue for some time to come uh, until we see progress on the political front, which, as I say, uh, is, is not immediately, um, immediately obvious. Um, they don't do too much cocaine through Kosovo. It's largely heroin, um, but uh, that will be big for, for a long time. And between Milo and Hashim, well, uh, the thing about Djukanovic is, is that, you know, they knew he was doing the cigarettes. The Italians tried to indict him very early on for association with mafia groups. They failed because the Americans and the British applied direct political pressure on the Italian not to go ahead with this. The Italian government couldn't control it because it came out of uh, the, uh, 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 the magistrate's office in, in Naples initially. Uh, but they did dampen it down because Dukanovic, after 96-97, was central to Western strategy uh, against Milosevic. Um, and what the Americans and the British argued to the Italians is, why don't you just pay him $30 million a year, which is what he says he earns out of this, uh, and then you won't lose as much money, and, you know, and we can maintain our strategy there. After Milosevic's fall, the Americans and the British forced Djukanovic to stop the trade in cigarettes, which he did do in October 2001, 
Uh, but, of course, he has to find money from somewhere because Montenegro doesn't, frankly, produce a great deal. And so, instead, he's invited the oligarchs in and uh, turned Montenegro into what is now colloquially known as Moscow on Sea. Uh, and they are redeveloping South Montenegro in their own inimitable, uh, uh, tasteful fashion. And uh, so there you are. What else are you going to do if you're a little country like Montenegro? Um, and, <clears throat> you know, Hashim Thaci is in the same position that Zoran Jinjic. That, you know, they're all like this, whether it's, whether it's Kostunica, whether it's, whether it's um, well, possibly not Gligorov, but um, uh, Branko Tsurenkovsky. They, they all have to be involved in business because they can't survive otherwise. And so... You know, this is, this is a, a, a systemic problem that we will face in all Balkan countries. Um, but uh, Montenegro and, and Kosovo are, are especially bad. In terms of the legalization of drugs, well, you know, I've come to the conclusion that at the very least we ought to start having an adult debate about this. Uh, I come back to uh, uh, Britain having been in, in BC where even the most hardened anti-drugs campaigners don't for a minute suggest that you ought to stop people from smoking marijuana because it's so widespread um, <clears throat> that uh, there's nothing you can do about it. They realize that the war on drugs as such is lost. And I come back here to this absolutely preposterous debate about reclassification from C to B, which has no bearing uh, to reality on any level whatsoever. The problem is, is, is that the spread and the increase in the production and consumption of drugs has been so enormous since the 1990s that if you want to prosecute the war on drugs, you have to have a concomitant increase in law enforcement, and that has not happened. The budgets haven't risen, and you would need a North Korean-style law enforcement capacity in order to do something about it. And nobody is interested in giving the police any more money. We have poured tens of billions, God knows, into homeland security and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, nothing of uh, any magnitude approaching that required to, uh, uh, to effect a law enforcement solution to the production, distribution, and consumption of narcotics. And so uh, my, I would argue that one should legalize cannabis more or less straight away because the social harm uh, produced by cannabis is, is uh, negligible compared to that, say, produced by alcohol. Um, and uh, then have a look and see whether within five years Western civilization has collapsed. And if it hasn't, turn your attention to, uh, to other narcotics. Okay, let's take a very last round. I can only see, I can see three people, and so we'll just take these last three questions. The lady in the front, you, and the one in the back. Is that it? Can you hear me? Yeah, yes. got it. Uh, this is to do with um, the influx of Russian organized crime into Israel. Now, a friend of mine is back recently from the West Bank, and the rumors on the ground amongst the Palestinians is that regardless of who ordered the assassination uh, of the tourism minister of Israel a little while back, um, they, the rumor is that it was actually carried out by a member of Russian organized crime who is based in Israel. In your book, are you referring to the same case on page 140, penultimate paragraph from the bottom? 
where you actually say, in one famous incident, a Labour member of the Knesset accused a cabinet minister later assassinated by the Palestinians of links with Israeli organized crime. Is that the same case? And had you heard of these rumors, would you, can you clarify? Uh, it is the same case, yes. Because I hadn't heard that he actually was thought to have links with organized crime himself, just that, that oh, was who uh, targeted him. I, I, him. I, he was thought to have, mm -hmm. I mean, because anyone who was, uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, a lot of Russian groups, I have to be very careful here because of libel laws, but a lot of, a lot of Russian groups funded Israeli political parties. And, uh, I mean, it's perfectly possible that he was, you know, he was assassinated by a, a, um, a member of a Russian organized criminal group. Um, it was uh, not so assumed at the time. And uh, uh, one, if I remember, one Palestinian group claimed responsibility for the murder. Exactly. Um, and uh, so I was, you know, going on, the, uh, <coughs> on, their, on their claim. Um, but uh, certainly... In that area of the political spectrum, a huge amount of funding came from Russian organized crime, according to uh, American law enforcement agencies. And there was one fairly transparent case of that as well. Yes, okay. Did you end up breaking many laws during your investigations? Because I, uh, I seem to remember from... The way you write about this uh, Canadian dope smuggler, for example, uh, that you... Uh, the, the, that I... Yeah, that uh, well, were, I, with, well with, I didn't, I didn't cross the border. I didn't cross the border with him. He explained to me how he did it. And, but I, what I did do was he dismantled the, he dismantled the uh, car uh, in front of me. And he showed me where he hid the dope and so on. So I wasn't actually complicit in committing a crime on that occasion. I suppose I could be done for withholding evidence um, of a crime being committed. But, you know, I mean, I, I, you've got to do this sort of thing. You know? and if <laughs> the Americans or the Canadians want to bust me, they can bust me. I mean, what can I do? You know? And then a final question at the back. I was wondering what your analysis is of how the global war on terror has impacted on uh, transnational organized crime and more in particular on international financial flows. Absolutely. Uh, because that's, of course, always a claim that is made by the Bush administration. Thank you. Uh, what they did was that, I, I mean, Clinton, to his credit, had started to assemble the, the sort of skeleton of a, a global... Uh, financial regime, monitoring regime, um, and uh, he, he worked quite he worked quite hard at this. It was it was inadequate, um, and it imposed a lot of quite a lot of obligations on the banks themselves to police themselves, which they really don't like, and it can also be undermined because they're policing themselves. Um, uh, this was all dismantled under the influence of Larry Lindsay, who is the assistant treasurer. Uh, Secretary of the Treasury um, as soon as they came in in 2001. And so when 9-11 happened, Bush turned around and said, where did these guys get their money from? And uh, he was told by his advisors, well, you told us to dismantle all of that, so we haven't got a clue. And um, so and then what they did was to put rather sort of crude blanket uh, 
blanket impositions on some of the financial sector, but not uh, all of it. And there were certain places where you could, uh, uh, you could always get money through. Not always the obvious places. I mean, Dubai was uh, uh, very big, but uh, you know, in recent years, Iceland has been thoroughly corrupted through Iceland's banking system through the inflow of uh, money, mainly from Russia, but from other, some other dubious sources uh, as well. Um, <clears throat> and uh, some areas of the banking sector have been uh, tightened up, but not always um, appropriately uh, so. It, this is, I, I, I mean, you know, this is something which needs very, very careful study, in my opinion, because I don't think it's been particularly effective, partly because of some of the examples I discovered of people who were still laundering money. Um, within this context, I have to highlight one issue, and that is the BAE systems business, uh, because uh, if we're to do something about this around the world, good governance is absolutely essential. And with that one decision the Blair government lost credibility with uh, anyone in Nigeria, anyone in China who's trying to do something about corruption in their countries because we cannot go around lecturing uh, anyone else in the world about the need to do something about corruption. And my God, one does need to do something about corruption in a country like Nigeria. Um, uh, and then go ahead and drop the, uh, drop the BAE systems uh, investigation. I spoke last week um, to uh, Al Aswani, the guy who wrote the Yacoubian building, and he said the damage that was inflicted on uh, uh, Arab Democrats by this decision to let go the Saudi investigation was absolutely huge, and it was hugely demoralizing and depressing. Um, for the uh, democratic Arab opposition when this decision was made, uh, was made known. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I'm a, a great believer in Transparency International and doing stuff about, about corruption, and this has inflicted a huge amount of damage on our, on our credibility as a country that goes around and tries to wag fingers at people about the way they should behave in the national interest. That covers almost every sin around. Well, that's a very good note to end at exactly 8 o'clock. So thank you so much, Misha, for a really fascinating interview. <laughs>